we're making the same investments on a financial standpoint, the same investments on a time and attention and care to the property. Yeah, and what points is the kind of that market or external perception starts to change. This is Gated Communities, where we talk about everything you're not supposed to talk about in the mortgage industry. I'm Mike Savino, head of multimedia for the Mortgage News Network, filling in for Katie Jensen. This is Gated Communities, sponsored by PennyMac, where we'll be talking about gatekeeping, redlining, company culture, and how to actually help underserved borrowers. Today, we're joined by Ashley Eldemeyer. She's an assistant professor of finance at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, Ashley recently co-authored a study looking at whether homeownership among low-income Americans helps close wealth gaps or whether it makes disparities among racial lines worse than they already are. Ashley, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. So you you looked at this topic that I just mentioned. I guess just to start it off, you know, give me the, the cliff notes of, of what you found. Does this fix the problem? Does it make it worse? Does it not have any impact at all? Um, so the quick notes are that homeownership definitely helps improve wealth outcomes for all of our low-income households. However, it doesn't help households in the same way. So we see a pretty sizable um, wealth accumulation gap between our white home buyers and our minority home buyers. The way we're defining minorities, as most of our study is looking at African-American um, nominated or what is it, head of household uh, demographics. And then we also include those that have a Hispanic or AAPI denomination. The main kind of takeaway that we're observing is that the differences in wealth aren't coming from the household earnings. So it's not coming from labor force participation, how many people in the household are working. It's not coming from wage accumulation, so the actual earnings they're pulling in, how those earnings are growing over time. The primary driver of the wealth gap is embedded in the uh, appreciation that's coming from their home values. Biggest factors that we see differentiating the appreciation growth of our white households versus our minority households has a lot to do with where the homes themselves are located. Neighborhood quality is the primary driver. Um, In addition to that, we see a big uh, influence or impact from the experience of the PHAs that these households are working with, which I think might be of relevance to your audience because we PHA experience is literally saying how much interaction you know, the actual housing authority managers that are helping the home, home buyers, in this case, find their home, deal with appropriate lenders or set up their financing. Um, it's their experience. So whether or not they have been through this process with our low-income households you know, rarely, or if they are constantly working with lenders and working with realtors, that actually does end up having a big impact on like the long-term wealth effects of these households, primarily because that process is, as you might imagine, very hands-on. And the underwriting process, the deciding what type of mortgage facility to choose and how that's playing out in terms of the life of their loan, all those factors really matter for these low-income households where these margins are tight. And are you... Are you surprised by your findings? I mean, obviously, inequalities exist all over society, in, mm-hmm. including in areas of finance. But we've always been told, you know, home buying is a vehicle for for wealth. And, and there's different reasons why homeowners tend to accumulate wealth, including the, the value of, of the home itself. And as you mentioned, that that is happening here, even with, with low-income homeowners. 
But the fact that even there, this disparity exists and this thing that should be changing their lives isn't changing their lives equally. Was that surprising to you? Um, yes and no. I think the surprising part was kind of the, the gap. So how quickly that gap in wealth retention or accumulation kind of grows. So if we're looking at this kind of first figure that we had here in our paper, we were just plotting out um, essentially for you know, comparing uh, homeowners that were in their house for a similar amount of time just from year one, two, three, four, five, and how that wealth gap started to grow. And for me, the surprising takeaway is that you know, in our pre-trans period, or basically when they were renters, the differences in wealth amongst the households is near zero, essentially zero. There's not a significant difference. And it's you know not necessarily first year that we see them in the home, but by the second year, we start to see that gap really um, spread and widen. And I think maybe for me, the personally, the challenging part is that we have a narrative that we work really hard, we buy the right house, things are going to go our way. And it's not a factor of you know, households not working. It's not a factor of them not continuing to you know, realize some type of um, earned income and increases that earned income. It's literally the loss of appreciation or depreciation that they're experiencing in their homes. It sounds a little dis- not disappointing, but I think surprising. And obviously, you, you focused on data from HUD's uh, Housing Choice Voucher Home Ownership Program. So I guess just starting there, I mean, how much is this a, a, a sign of problems within the program? And how much can mm-hmm. you sort of take that data and extract it and look more broadly at a, a societal issue here? And so this is data that's actually really special, and it kind of makes this study, um, I think, very relevant or uh, convincing. So typically, when we think about wealth studies, we're using like a cross-sectional analysis. So we'll say, you know, we have two sets, different sets of samples. You know, one set of samples, say sample A, goes through some shock, and we look at how the outcomes have changed for them before and after that shock. We compare that before and after. Group A to Group B, who never experienced the shock. The challenge in that is that the people in Group A and B are different people. Again, they might have very different just natural dispositions about savings or work or whatever other you know, individual characteristics. What's nice about this high sample in uh, our study is that we are able to track the same households over that transition. So we're looking at, let's say, like your home, the Savino home. Uh, from the five or six years we observed them as renters and another five or six years as homeowners. All of the equal, you know, nothing about the Sabino family uh, has fundamentally changed, right? Your taste and habits and so forth, we, we can assume have stayed the same. The biggest shock that has changed for your household is that shift from having a market rent that's updating year after year to a fixed mortgage. That's one way that we observe some kind of stability and um, housing expenses and some potential for wealth retention. Every time I get a brain, maybe I can hold on to a little bit more of that. The other thing that comes with that homeownership shift is the potential ability for all those payments not to be lost to rent, but to actually be going towards equity. So there's the mechanical part of your equity that's building from just your month-to-month mortgage payment. And then there's the market part, that's the appreciation in the home. What I think is interesting or telling about this particular program is the fact that that monthly mortgage payment is a split. So the way that HUD structures 
um, housing assistance payment or the total tenant payment part of a housing assistance payment. It's a function of uh, 30%, sometimes up to 40% of your adjusted income. And then the rest of that, HUD is capturing or picking up up to like a cap, right? So there's usually a, like a median set for a number of bedrooms in a home and so forth with market dependent. That is actually a beautiful feature of the homeownership program. It's that adjustment or that contribution from HUD plus your total tenant payment, those things are fixed over that mortgage. When we're thinking about you know, these wealth effects, I don't know that it's, or those gaps, I don't think it's a function of, you know, a law and the way that HUD has set up that joint payment or their contribution to the mortgages. I think it's more tied to, you know, some systemic bigger issues of, why we have such variation uh, in neighborhoods you know, in the same like, zip code or so forth, or just crossing across uh, areas. Um, but in the ways that we can manage or maybe have some real impact on, I do think it's in terms of the steering that homeowners are getting when they are trying to purchase, so being steered towards maybe older homes, uh, homes that are going to experience more repair needs, uh, homes that we know are kind of in areas that haven't seen much improvement and uh, just the surrounding quality. So that's maybe on the realtor side. And then on the mortgage industry, um, I think it's a low adoption of this homeownership program. So although you know all PHAs could participate, uh, that is not the case. It's a small fraction of the eligible PHAs that are active. For example, I think there's a little over um, 2 million, 2.4 million households that are served by Housing assistance and in this homeownership program, we had about 16,000 households since its adoption in 2000. That's pretty telling. It's a sample size of uh, you know, PHAs that are actually able to offer um, this type of homeownership program or assistance. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes, no, absolutely. <laughs> and also the fact, you know, these people have to qualify regardless of, of your race. You have to meet the the yes, financial yeah. qualification. So they're all yeah. they're all coming from a, a same starting point. And one of the things they have to do is they also have to go through some counseling, uh, as you know, in the study to help them yeah. sort of become successful homeowners. Um, so if if we're still seeing this disparity, is, is, the, is there a, a problem with the, the counseling here or is this... You know, you touched on some of the stuff, and we'll get into details of, of some of your findings. Uh, is this just a sign? Again, is, is the counseling not working, or is this again just a sign of some some broader societal issues at play? Yeah, so there's actually a decent amount of requirements that the households that are going into the homeownership program have to clear. So um, certainly, it's financial counseling that's administered by the PHAs. They also have to show that they've got you know, two to three years of a stable, consistent employment and earned income. And then there's a couple other um, potential requirements around their portion of a down payment that they have to save up. So it's not that we are looking at, let's say, like immature uh, home buyers. Like these are right. fairly stable, um, kind of prepared, and you know, all else equal, financially viable uh, home buyers, even though they are low income. I think a major factor in these differences. So if we're going to kind of quickly run down the way that we set up our studies, we first just started by asking, you know, if we don't think about 
like any other activity, we just think about that transition from your renter status to your homeowner status. What are we observing in terms of um, changes and your wealth accumulation? If we've got like a pretty sizable, you know, 6,000 or so uh, jump in earnings. And I want to pause for just a quick second, just down below. So our mean wealth, our median wealth, and our standard deviation in wealth. These are pretty wide margins. So on average, our households are accumulating about 12 or having a mean wealth level of about $12,000, which maybe doesn't feel like a lot, but for the standards of being a low-income household, which can range from max of 1.25 to two times the poverty line, the women, as it stands for a particular region or area. You know, this is the amount of wealth that's coming through our homes. And again, most of that is based in the appreciation of the house itself, not in their liquid assets. We know that to be true because it's a kind of a, I'd say a built-in function requirement of the way that HUD approves homes or households to be a part of the voucher assistance and a part of the homeowner assistance. You have to contribute a max of 30% of assets or earned income. So that median wealth is maybe more representative of what we see households having about $600 or so in, in liquid savings and assets. And that's standard deviation, we see about $44,000. Typically, it has to do with the differences in uh, home values for those, let's say, in uh, California versus maybe a more manageable. Oh, I don't want to pick on any particular state, let's say, like a Dakota or or Tennessee, we'll take Tennessee. Um, you know, the biggest change for us is when we start to toss in that much minority homeowner, the gains just disappear. It's just the thing that is uh, frustrating for us. And let me pause for a quick second. Since these first two tables are us thinking about, is it a function of whether or not you know households are over leveraged in their mortgages? Are they spending more of their in income towards that um, housing expense? That doesn't seem to be the case. When we're thinking about um, that neighborhood quality, this is the area where we see probably the most, let's say, community or environment-based difference. What we're observing in terms of labor force dissipation or financial fragility. And again, it's kind of how we are assessing quality. So to the extent that Maybe we have some issues or challenges in the appraisal market for what is deemed a you know better neighborhood. Why it's the case of having more white residents uh, at a zip code level makes it a um, more valuable area, or some variation in terms of like owner occupied homes. And I do think that these are you know, measures of neighborhood quality. They certainly aren't the only like measures or the tell all be all. But they are ways for us to maybe think about when we're observing this wealth gap that's, again, rooted in appreciation. Why do we have such different levels of appreciation for, you know, again, the neighborhoods that have more single-family households or narrow it on that for our mortgage market, more single-family dwellings, right? So just the one home versus like multifamily units. These are some of the factors that seem to maybe be harming the minority homeowners more than the white homeowners and that might be a function of with evidence that it's a function of you know, where people are clustered. That's not a random thing. We know that urban areas 
tend to have more multifamily units. This tends to be where um, minority households are purchasing their homes. We get into this like we're chasing our tails a bit because if we're continually seeing low appraisals in those areas of just low property appreciation, we're never going to observe that as a meaningful asset or a way for us to realize the wealth that, that they're paying into those mortgages. And that, right. I mean, we've, we've also seen, you know, on that topic, because we've actually even discussed this here on, on gated communities, there's been some high profile incidents of, you know, not even, um, you know, what people might think of an urban neighborhood with a lot of apartments and multifamily housing, but even just in neighborhoods with a lot of black homeowners, we've seen a problem where that mm-hmm. breaks down and it becomes a perpetuating thing where it's a black neighborhood. Therefore, the appraisals are lower. Therefore, when I get my house reappraised, it's, this, as somebody who's working on, I mean, is that, you know, sort of a, a black woman who's working in this space, is that perhaps one of the most frustrating things you come across is that not that people should just artificially go the other way and say, well, we'll make this house worth 500000 But does it feel like it becomes a self-perpetuating thing when we just, just, yeah, let's just lower the appraisals? No, it definitely does. Um, and to the extent that there's a, a couple of other papers that we're looking at, you know, property taxes over the last 40 years across uh, zip codes. And what they're showing there is that even in places that are paying higher rates of property taxes and have higher proportions of minority residents, there are still fewer, I guess, would say amenities, right? So fewer parks, fewer simple things like the number of trash cans that are around, trees that are planted, just actual services that are realized in those communities. For me, thinking about why is it the case then, you know, if I'm driving through an area, it's not necessarily that I see all of the residents in the houses that we're passing. What are the cues or markers then that say, well, I think this area doesn't feel as, hmm, what's the word, green, verdant, lush, appealing, right? As another, like just whatever I say. To me, it's those little small things. And I mean, it is quite frustrating because it's, it's not the case that homeowners aren't paying their mortgages or paying their taxes. It's not the case that they are not maintaining the properties. It's again, a general requirement that HUD has for all of us recipients, whether they're renters or homeowners, is that the properties that they're um, inhabiting you know, meet fairly high qualities in terms of uh, the condition of the property. And for the homeowners in particular, they have really stringent requirements not to be purchasing homes that are like, dilapidated or uh, on the edge of you know, falling into disarray. Um, and for those that are like rehab houses, like that's coming with a second mortgage and a whole separate set of like, conditions and requirements. So these are fairly, you know, all equal, fairly good quality homes that we see of the type of purchasing. I, I mean, it does feel like how do you get out of that cycle if we, you know, we're making the same investments on a financial standpoint, the same investments on a time and attention and care to the property. Yeah, at what point does the kind of that market or external perception start to change? And and you looked at, I mean, we've been talking about location and in, in neighborhood, uh, which you've said is the is the single uh biggest factor. Is it is it by far because you looked at at several factors, including uh, you know, you you touched on, but then you also looked at the the financial 
health of the of of home buyers before they buy like you looked at is this a problem of well buying a home takes up your wealth yeah and, and yeah. you've noticed that that isn't necessarily the whole problem and then you've looked at several factors including uh labor and everybody's going to make sure that they're working overtime to pay their mortgage and we know there's mm-hmm inequality in pay between black and white workers. And there's, you looked at several other factors as well. How much of a, I don't know if you can quantify, but how much does the neighborhood and some of the problems with, with appraisals and and home values based simply on neighborhood, how much does that account for this versus some of the other factors? Um, Let me go ahead and put us back on the clockwise basis. And I should know, sorry, before I should know, because uh, you've obviously been referencing some of the tables. For anybody who wants to view the tables, the links will be embedded in the description of this episode, both for the report and for some other information that uh, Ashley might reference through this episode. So what we were kind of finding in the breakdowns that we did on measures of neighborhood quality. So again, we're looking at the portion of single family households that are are dwelling, that are uh, in a neighborhood. uh, And again, we're defining neighborhood at the zip code level. Um, also looking at you know, whether or not there is a higher percentage of white residents at the zip code or owner-occupied homes, et cetera. So these neighborhood characteristics, depending on which measure we were looking at, kind of made up a, a, between 30 to 65% of that difference in wealth that we were observing. And again, the average is about 6000 in terms of appreciation uh, or accumulation on wealth for our households, and then that split becomes about 1,300, 1,400 for power, autonomy, and maybe changing some of these outcomes um, is to be pushing back on appraisals when they come in and when that underwriting is going on if something feels like it's, and not feels on a, you know, just a personal opinion basis, but on an objective measure, if you've got other households from that you know, similar mile to mile radius that are having you know, significantly higher uh, appraisals, maybe challenge that appraiser to justify who their comps were, why this particular property doesn't seem to be pulling in the same um, value that others are are realizing. Um, another way that this group could really help, I'm going to post over to um, HUD's website where they have a little resource or webinar for implementing this homeownership program. And in that webinar series, one of the nice uh, breakout or summary FAQ pages they have is a lender's frequently asked question. And in that set, they're basically talking about how financing works and how lenders might partner with PHAs. A big challenge for the low-income households in particular, you know, all of these uh, assistance-based activities, their mortgage level, all of it's based on income. So those challenges aren't changing. When we run into issues is, you know, when we have low-income earners in really high-cost areas, or just households themselves are not quite able to hit the, I guess, the like, you know, purchasing price for just median quality homes in the area. This, to me, is where financing is 
critical and in, specifically in terms of the ways that we can be creative with the type of financing that we offer. So maybe considering split mortgages between the housing assistance and like the individual household or um, other models where maybe we can alleviate some of the underwriting, like not underwriting, what is origination fees, right? Other partial ways, I mean, there are marginal like adjustments or uh, even private mortgage insurance, some other assessments that maybe we can have these loans be um, in-house, maybe smaller portfolio loans. You know, to the extent that HUD is guaranteeing their portion of the assistance payment, 10 years is the max for disabled households, 15 is the max for elderly and disabled households. I mean, there is a decent amount of assurance that there is going to be an income stream coming back. There is like you know, secured property and cash flow rights behind these mortgages. I do think there is reasonably a stance for uh, lenders to argue for keeping some of these loans in-house. Credit mortgage really does kind of take up a lot of the purchasing power when we're talking about households earning between 20 and um, Forty thousand dollars a year, depending on That's interesting because you note in the study that that one of the the factors that you see here is, you know, some of the public housing authorities are more active, more healthy, more vibrant, and those mm-hmm. lend those borrowers tend to accumulate more wealth. Is that what you're talking about? That some of these public housing authorities maybe they just move this stuff along, and that a lender should be aware of just because they're coming from a public housing authority from this program doesn't mean they're getting the same treatment that somebody else from another public housing authority is getting? Um, I don't know that there's necessarily disparities in the, the way that um, housing authorities and also the managers and those authorities are kind of caring for and working with the households. I do think that they're all pretty dedicated. Where I think the differences show up is in just the experience. So, um, you know, if, Take, for example, the Philadelphia Public Housing Authority is a, one of the more active uh, authorities in the homeownership program. They have established lending relationships with two or three different local lenders. And I want to say one of those is a very local, um, like a credit union, and the other is a, a national bank. So they have different kind of providers for that relationship. Where their experience or those relationships really come into play is in you know, how to structure a particular mortgage. Uh, at the individual household level. So depending on you know, if we're talking about an elderly um, homeowner or purchaser or someone that's maybe younger, uh, if we're talking about those that have a disability assistance, it's just kind of the ability to help those households find the appropriate financing because they actually have options in financing. And if we you know, look at other housing authorities when they're reporting reasons why they have not started this program, a lot of it comes from a space of not having a relationship with lenders. So if I don't have the relationship or I've never gone through the process before, I don't quite know how to advise you on maybe doing the dual mortgage versus having have be counted as additional income versus you know having it be included in your base income. If I just have never been through the process before, it's you know it's unreasonable for us to or anyone I think to expect um, that there'll be the same fluidity right in that process. And it is important because you know, we're asking uh, individuals that are already managing pretty sizable caseloads on the renter side right, to learn essentially what's a new market. And I, I do think that that's actually a really important and meaningful way where 
I think your market could show up for these low-income households, whether they are white or minority. Reaching out to those housing authorities and yeah, seeking out what kind of counseling or assistance or partnerships uh, that are available or possible. Absolutely. And and we've been focusing on on the way that home ownership can can help build wealth. But of course, there's a lot of advantages when it comes to home ownership. And, uh, you know, it tends to lead to more civic engagement, because obviously, now you own a home in your community, you're fixed there, you're paying taxes, this is where your kids are going to go to school for however long you own this home comes with a certain amount of social capital. Do you find that low income, you know, regardless of, of uh, race or ethnicity, are people still getting those benefits from this program? Are there other benefits that they are still getting, even if it's not wealth accumulation? Yeah, so our, while our study didn't look at what I would call the qualitative benefits of homeownership directly, there have been a decent amount of papers that have kind of looked uh, into that particular topic. Where we kind of observe that in our sample is, I guess, in the tenure that we're observing, so how long we see our households kind of staying in those homes once they've purchased. Um, and let me jump back over really quickly to the paper here. And we come to some back. So right down here. So up oh, ten years, there it is. So when we were kind of looking at again how long our um, renters and homeowners are staying, um pause here at homeowner tenure. For our white households, we see them staying in the original house purchased with their subsidy for about six and a half years. And we only see the kind of minority um, homeowners staying in the same household for six hours for three, a little under three years. So I do think that we are observing, I mean, and the range there, to be fair, is, is quite wide. So on the low end is less than a year and on the high end is about 15 years, which is almost the length of our of our sample period, the time that HUD started this program to present. I do think that, you know, there isn't substantial evidence, at least in our study, to suggest that those qualitative benefits aren't occurring to these households. And certainly the stability aspect is a major one, especially as it pertains to this particular program, because the way that, you know, housing assistance is determined, so specifically the dollar amount of assistance that each household is going to get. This is an annual assessment. So every year households are reporting all the assets that they've saved up and their savings and testing, et cetera, um, and then what their earnings are. And has using you know, internal calculation to say, all right, so this is going to be, you know, this is your income, our uh, 30% threshold is here. For our homeowners, I mean, that's actually a really meaningful uh, shift in just year to year expenses because that mortgage payment isn't increasing. If we're thinking about you know, their time as renters, if they got a dollar raise, off of that, 30% of that dollar is going back towards their rent payment. That's one aspect, that's fine. But if rent's also increasing, if you can't quite catch up, right? So if my rent's going up 20, you know, cents, so now my dollar raise is just plummeted to 50 and I haven't paid taxes yet, right? I haven't like gone through any of the other expenses that I might face for rents and outside of rents, me like our utilities and food, et cetera. Um, on the homeownership side, the fact that there is that bit of stability, so yes, I might have an increase on my kind of contribution to my mortgage of that 30%, the mortgage itself isn't pivoting. And even if I have that stability just for that median three years, or we're talking about our white six years, 
that is a substantial way for um, to just build some cushion, which I think is so meaningful when we are talking about low-income households in particular. If our national average is at less than half of households have like five hundred dollars in liquid savings, and it does allow them at least a chance to get some some flexibility. Absolutely. And some some great advice there when talking about, uh, you know, how to work with public housing authorities to know what their options are. And also, you know, great point on, uh, you know, making sure that the appraisal is is fair and pushing back. And, you know, that's an opportunity to maybe get your borrower some equity right off the bat if you can uh, get that get that appraisal up a little bit. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing uh, your report with us. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. This is Gated Communities, hosted by me, Katie Jensen, for the Mortgage News Network. All episodes are produced by T.G. Kudem Peror and Matthew Mullins. Our head of multimedia is Mike Savino, and our editor-in-chief is Christine Stewart. Make sure you subscribe to Gated Communities so you get future episodes, and be sure to rate and review it so others can find it. The song you heard at the beginning was Wildside by Saint Society, and the song you hear now is Will You Dance With Me by La La Nia. This podcast is copyrighted by American Business Media.